Hatchet, Chapter 13 Brian stood at the end of the long part of the L of the lake and watched the water, smelled the water, listened to the water, was the water. A fish moved, and his eyes jerked sideways to see the ripples, but he did not move any other part of his body and did not raise the bow or reach into his belt pouch for the fish arrow. It was not the right kind of fish, not a food fish. The food fish stayed close in, in the shallows, and did not roll that way, but made quicker movements, small movements, food movements. The large fish rolled and stayed deep and could not be taken, but it didn't matter. This day, this morning, he was not looking for fish. Fish was light meat, and he was sick of them. He was looking for one of the foolish birds. He called them fool birds. And there was a flock that lived near the end of the long part of the lake. But something he did not understand had stopped him, and he stood, breathing gently through his mouth to keep silent, letting his eyes and ears go out and do the work for him. It happened before this way. Something had come to him from outside to warn him, and he had stopped. Once it had been the bear again. He had been taking the last of the raspberries, and something came inside and stopped him. And when he looked where his ears said to look, there was a female bear with cubs. Had he taken two more steps, he would have come between the mother and her cubs, and that would have been a bad place to be. As it was, the mother had stood and faced him and made a sound, a low sound in her throat to threaten and warn him. He paid attention to the feeling now, and he stood and waited patiently, knowing he was right and that something would come. Turn, smell, listen, feel, and then a sound, a small sound, and he looked up and away from the lake and saw the wolf. It was halfway up the hill from the lake, standing with its heads and head and shoulders sticking out into a small opening, looking down on him with wide yellow eyes. He had never seen a wolf, and the size threw him. Not as big as a bear, but somehow seemingly that large. The wolf claimed all that was below him as his own, took Brian as his own. Brian looked back and for a moment felt afraid because the wolf was so, so right. He knew Brian, knew him and owned him and chose not to do anything to him. But that fear moved, then moved away, and Brian knew the wolf for what it was, another part of the woods another part of it all. Brian relaxed the tension on the spear in his hand, settled the bow in his other hand from where he had, it had started to come up. He knew the wolf now, as the wolf knew him, and he nodded to it, nodded and smiled. The wolf watched him for another time, another part of his life, then it turned and walked effortlessly up the hill as it had come out of the bush. It was followed by three other wolves, all equally large and gray and beautiful all looking down on him as they trotted past and away, and Brian nodded to each of them. He was not the same now. The Brian that stood and watched the wolves move away and nodded to them was completely changed. Time had come, time that he measured but he did not care about. Time he had come into his life and moved out and left him different. In measured time, 47 days had passed since the crash. 42 days, he thought, since he had died and been born as the new Brian. When the plane had come and gone, it had put him down, gutted him, and dropped him and left him with nothing. 
The rest of that first day he had gone down and down until dark. He had let the fire go out, had forgotten to eat even an egg, had let his brain take him down to where he was done, where he wanted to be done and done, to where he wanted to die. He had settled into the gray funk deeper and still deeper until finally, in the dark, he had gone up the ridge and taken the hatchet and tried to end it by cutting himself. Madness, a hissing madness that took his brain. There had been nothing for him then, and he tried to become nothing, but the cutting had been hard to do, impossible to do, and he had fallen to his side, wishing for death, wishing for an end, and slept, only didn't sleep. With his eyes closed and his mind open, he laid on the rock through the night, lay and hated and wished for it to end, and thought of the word, cloud down, cloud down through that awful night. Over and over the word wanting all his clouds to come down, but in the morning he was still there, still there on his side, and the sun came up, and when he opened his eyes, he saw the cuts on his arm, the dry blood turning black. He saw the blood and hated the blood, hated what he had done to himself when he was the old Brian and was weak, and two things came to his mind, two true things. He was not the same. The plain passing changed him. The disappointment cut him down and made him new. He was not the same and would never be again like he had been. That was one of the true things, the new things. And the other one was that he would not die. He would not let death in again. He was new. Of course, he had made lots of mistakes. He smiled now, walking up the lakeshore after the wolves were gone, thinking of the early mistakes. The mistakes that came before he realized that he had to find new ways to be what he had become. He had made a new fire, which he now kept going, using partially rotted wood because the punky wood would smolder for many hours and still come back with fire. But that had been the extent of doing things right for a while. His first bow was a disaster that almost blinded him. He had sat the whole night and shaped the limbs carefully until the bow looked beautiful. Then he had spent two days making arrows. The shafts were willow straight and with the bark peeled, and he fire-hardened the points and split a couple of them to make forked points, as he had done with the spear. He had no feathers, so he just left them bare. Figuring for fish, they only had to travel a few inches. He had no string, and that threw him until he looked down at his tennis shoes. They had long laces, too long, and he found that one lace cut in half would take care of both shoes, and that half the other lace that left half the other lace for a bowstring. All seemed to be going well until he tried a test shot. He put an arrow to the string, pulled it back to his chest, pointed it at the dirt hummock, and at that precise instance, the bow wood exploded in his hands, sending splinters and chips of wood into his face. Two pieces actually stuck into his forehead, just above his eyes, and they had only been slightly lower. They would have blinded him. Too stiff. Mistakes. In his mental journal, he listed them to tell his father, listed all the mistakes. He had made a new bowl with slender limbs and more fluid, gentle pull, but could not hit the fish, though he sat in the water and was, in the end, surrounded by a virtual cloud of small fish. It was infuriating. He would pull the bowl back, set the arrow just above the water, and when the fish was no more than an inch away, release the arrow, only to miss. It seemed to him that the arrow had gone right through the fish again and again but the fish didn't get hurt. Finally, after hours, he struck down the bow. He struck the arrow down into the water, pulled the bow, and waited for a fish to come close, and while he was waiting, he noticed that the water seemed to make the arrow bend or break in the middle. 
Of course, he had forgotten that water refracts light, refracts, bends light. He had learned that somewhere in some class. Maybe it was biology, but he couldn't remember. But it did, did bend light, and that meant the fish were not where they appeared to be. They were lower, just below, which meant he had to aim just under them. He would not forget his first hit. Not ever. A round-shaped fish with golden sides, sides as gold as the sun, stopped in front of the arrow, and he aimed just beneath it and at the bottom edge of the fish and released the arrow, and there was a bright flurry, a splash of gold in the water. He grabbed the arrow and raised it up, and the fish was on the end, wriggling against the blue sky. He held the fish against the sky until it stopped wiggling, held it and looked to the sky and felt his throat tighten, swell, and fill with pride at what he had done. He had done food. With his bow, an arrow fashioned by his own hands, he had done food, had found a way to live. The bow had given this way, and he exulted in it, in the bow, in the arrow, in the fish, in the hatchet, in the sky. He stood and walked away from the water, still holding the fish and arrow and bow against the sky, seeing them as they fit his arms, as if they were a part of him. He had food. He cut a green willow fork and held the fish over the fire until the skin crackled and peeled away and the meat inside was flaky and moist and tender. Then he picked off, carefully with his fingers, tasting every piece, mashing them in his mouth with his tongue to get the juices out of them, hot, steaming pieces of fish. He could not, he thought then, ever get enough. And all that first day, first a new day, he spent fish going to the lake, shooting a fish, taking it back to the fire, cooking it and eating it, then back to the lake, shooting a fish, cooking it and eating it, and on that way until it was dark. He had taken the scraps back to the water with the thought that they might work for bait, and that other fish came by the hundreds to clean them up. He could take his pick of them, like a store, he thought, just like a store, and he could not remember later how many he had ate that day, but he thought it must have been over 20. It had been a feast day. His first feast day and a celebration of being alive and the new way he had of getting food. By the end of that day, when it became dark and he lay next to the fire with his stomach full of fish and grease from the meat smeared around his mouth, he could feel new hope building in him. Not hope that he would be rescued. That was gone. But hope in his knowledge. Hope in the fact that he could learn and survive and take care of himself. Tough hope, he thought that night. I am full of tough hope. Hatchet, Chapter 14. Mistakes. Small mistakes could turn into disasters. Funny little mistakes could snowball so that while you were still smiling at the humor, you could find yourself looking at death. In the city, if he made a mistake, usually there was a way to rectify it, to make it all right. If he fell on his bike and sprained his leg, he could wait for it to heal. If he forgot something at the store, he could find other food in the refrigerator. Now it was different, and all so quick. All so incredibly quick. If he sprained a leg here, he might starve before he could get around again. If he missed while he was hunting, or if the fish moved away, he might starve. If he got sick, really sick so he couldn't move, he might starve. Mistakes. Early in the new time, he had learned the most important thing, the truly vital knowledge that drives all creatures in the forest. Food is all. Food was simply everything. All things in the woods, from insects to fish to bears, were always looking for food. It was the great single driving influence in nature. To eat. All must eat. But the way he learned it almost killed him. 
His second new night, stomach full of fish and the fire smoldering in the shelter, he had been sound asleep when something, he thought later it might be the smell, had awakened him. Near the fire, completely unafraid of the smoking coals, completely unafraid of Brian, a skunk was digging where he had buried the eggs. There was some sliver of a mood, and in the faint pearl light, he could see the bushy tail and the white stripes down the back, and he had nearly smiled. He did not know how the skunk had found the eggs. Some smell, perhaps. Some tiny fragment of a shell had left the smell, but it looked almost cute. Its little head down and its little tail up as it dug, kicking the sandbag. But those were his eggs, not the skunk's. And the half-smile had quickly been replaced with fear that he would lose his food and he had grabbed a handful of sand and thrown it at the skunk. Get out of here! He was going to say more, some silly human words, but in less than half a second, the skunk had snapped its rear end up, curved the tail over, and sprayed Brian with a direct shot aimed from his head, at his head from less than four feet away. In the tiny confines of the shelter, the effect was devastating. The thick, sulfurous, rotten odor filled the small room, heavy, ugly, and stinking. The corrosive spray that hit his face seared into his lungs and eyes, blinding him. He screamed and threw himself sideways, taking the entire wall of, off the shelter, screamed and clawed out of the shelter, and fell ran to the shore of the lake. Stumbling and tripling, tripping, he scrambled into the water and slammed his head back and forth, trying to wash his eyes, slashing at the water to clear his eyes. A hundred funny cartoons he had seen about skunks. Cute cartoons about the smell of skunks. Cartoons to laugh at and joke about, but when that spray hit, there was nothing funny about it. He was completely blind for almost two hours. A lifetime. He thought that he might be permanently blind or at least impaired, and that would have been the end. As it was, the pain in his eyes lasted for days, bothered him after that for two weeks. The smell in the shelter, in his clothes and in his hair, was still there now, almost a month and a half later. And he had nearly smiled. Mistakes. Food had to be protected. While he was in the lake trying to clear his eyes, the skunk went ahead and dug up the rest of the turtle eggs and ate every one, licked all the shells clean, and couldn't have cared less that Brian was thrashing around in the water like a dying carp. The skunk had found food and was taking it, and Brian was paying for a lesson. Protect food and have a good shelter. Not just a shelter to keep the wind and the rain out, but a shelter to protect, a shelter to make him safe. The day after the skunk, he set about making a good place to live. The basic idea had been good. The place for his shelter was right, but he just hadn't gone far enough. He had been lazy, but now he knew the second most important thing about nature, what drives nature. Food was first, but the work for food went on and on. Nothing in nature was lazy. He had tried to take a shortcut and paid for it with his turtle eggs, which he had come to like more than chicken eggs from the store. They had been fuller somehow, had more depth to them. He set about improving his shelter by tearing it down. From dead pines up the hill, he brought down several heavier logs and fastened several of them across the opening, wedging them at the top and burying the bottoms in the sand. Then he wove long branches through them to make a truly tight wall. And still not satisfied, he took even thinner branches and wove those into the first weave. When he was at last finished, he could not find a place to put his fists through. It all held together like a very stiff, woven basket. He judged the door opening to be the weakest spot, and here he took special time to weave a door of willows in so tight a mesh that no matter how a skunk tried, or a porcupine he thought, 
looking at the marks on his leg. It could not possibly get through. He had no hinges, but by arranging some cut-off limbs at the top in the right way, he had a method to hook the door in place, and when he was in and the door was hung, he felt relatively safe. A bear, something big, could still get in by tearing at it, but nothing small could bother him, and the weave of the structure still allowed the smoke to filter up through the top and out. All in all, it took him three days to make the shelter, stopping to shoot fish and eat as he went, bathing four times a day to try and get the smell from the skunk to leave. When his house was done, finally done right, he turned to the constant problem, food. It was all right to hunt and eat or fish and eat, but what happened if he had to go a long time without food? What happened when the berries were gone and he got sick or hurt, thinking of the skunk laid up temporarily? He needed a way to store food, a place to store, and he needed food to store. Mistakes. He tried to learn from the mistakes. He couldn't bury food again. Couldn't leave it in the shelter because something like a bear could get at it right away. It had to be high somehow, high and safe. Above the door to the shelter, up the rock face about 10 feet, was a small ledge that could make a natural storage place unreachable to animals, except that it was unreachable to him as well. A ladder, of course. He needed a ladder. But he had no way to fashion one, nothing to hold the steps on, and that stopped him until he found a dead pine with many small branches still sticking out. Using his hatchet, he chopped the branches off so they stuck out four or five inches, all up along the log. Then he cut the log off about ten feet long and dragged it down to the shelter. It was a little heavy, but dry, and he could manage it. And when he propped it up, he found he could climb to the ledge with ease though the tree did roll from side to side a bit as he climbed. His food shelter, as he thought of it, had been covered with bird manure, and he carefully scraped it clean with sticks. He had never seen birds there, but that was probably because the smoke from his fire went right across the opening and they didn't like smoke. Still, he hadn't had learned, and he took time to weave a snug door for the small opening with green willows, cutting it so that it jammed in tightly. And when he finished, he stood back and looked at the rock face, his shelter below, the food shelf above, and allowed a small bit of pride to come. Not bad, he had thought. Not bad for somebody who's used to having trouble greasing the bearings on his bicycle. Not bad at all. Mistakes. He had made a good shelter and food shelf, but he had no food except for the fish and the last of the berries. And the fish, as good as they still tasted then, were not something he could store. His mother had left some salmon out by mistake one time when they went on an overnight trip to Cape Hesper to visit with relatives, and when they got back, the whole house smelled of fish. There was no way to store the fish. At least, he thought, no way to store them dead. But as he looked at the weave of his structure, a thought came to him, and he moved down to the water. He had been putting water, the waste from the fish back in the water, and the food had attracted hundreds of new ones. I wonder. They seemed to come easily to the food, at least the small ones. He had no trouble now shooting them, and had even speared one with his old fish spear. Now that he knew to aim low, he could dangle something in his fingers, and they came right up to it. It might be possible, he thought, might just be possible to trap them, make some kind of pond. To his right, at the base of the small rock bluff, 
There were piles of smaller rock that had fallen from the main chunk, splinters and hunks from double fist size to some as large as his head. He spent an afternoon carrying rocks to the beach and making what amounted to a large pen for holding live fish. Two rock arms that stuck out 15 feet into the lake and curved together at the end. Where the arms came together, he left an opening about two feet across, then he sat on the shore and waited. When he had first started dropping the rocks, all the fish had darted away. But his fish trash pile of bones and skin and guts was in the pond area, and the prospect of food brought them back. Soon, under an hour, there were 30 or 40 small fish in the enclosure, and Brian made a gate by weaving small window sills together into a fine mesh and closed them in. Fresh fish, he had yelled. I have fresh fish for sale. Storing live fish to eat later had been a major breakthrough, he thought. It wasn't just keeping from starving. It was trying to save ahead. Think ahead. Of course, he didn't know how sick he would get of fish. Hatchet, Chapter 15 The days had folded one into another and mixed so that after two or three weeks, he only knew time had passed in days because he made a mark for each day in stone near the door to his shelter. Real time he measured in events. A day was nothing, not a thing to remember. It was just sun coming up, sun going down, some light in the middle. But events? Events were burned into his memory, and so he used them to remember time, to know and to remember what had happened, to keep a mental journal. There had been the day of the first to meet. That had been a day that had started like the rest, up after the sun, clean the camp, and make sure there's enough wood for another night. But it was a long time, a long time of eating fish and looking for berries, and he craved more. He craved more food, heavier food, deeper food. He craved meat. He thought in the night now of meat. Thought of his mother's cooking a roast or dreamed of turkey. And one night he awakened before he had put wood on the fire with his mouth making saliva and the taste of pork chops in his mouth. So real, so real. And all a dream. But it left him intent on getting meat. He had been working farther and further out for wood. Sometimes now, going nearly a quarter of a mile away from camp for wood. And he saw many small animals. Squirrels were everywhere. Small red ones that chattered at him and seemed to swear and jump from limb to limb. There were also many rabbits, large gray ones, with a mix of reddish fur, smaller fast ones that he only saw at dawn. There were larger ones, sometimes sat until he was quite close, then bounded and jerked two or three steps before freezing again. He thought if he worked at it and practiced, he might hit one of the larger rabbits with an arrow or a spear. Never the small ones or the squirrels. They were too fast and too small. And then there were the fool birds. They exasperated him to the point where they were close to driving him insane. The birds were everywhere, five and six in a flock, and their camouflage was so perfect that it was possible for Brian to sit and rest, leaning against a tree, with one of them standing right in front of him in a willow clump. Two feet away, hidden, only to explode into a deafening flight just when Brian least expected it. He just couldn't see them. He couldn't figure out how to locate them before they flew because they stood so perfectly still and blended in so perfectly well. And what made it worse was they were so dumb, or seemed to be so dumb, that it was almost insulting him the way they kept hidden from him. Nor could he get used to the way they exploded up when they flew. It seemed like every time he went for wood, which was every morning, he spent the whole time jumping and jerking in front as he walked. 
On one memorable morning, he actually reached for a piece of wood, what he thought to be a pitchy stump at the base of a dead birch, and his fingers close to touching it, only to have it blow up in his face. But on the day of first meet, he had decided the best thing to try for would to try for would be a fool bird, and that morning he set out with his bow and his spear to get one, to stay with it until he got one and ate some meat. Not to get wood, not to find berries, but to get a bird and eat some meat. And the first hunt had not gone well. He saw plenty of the birds working up along the shore to the end of the lake, then down the other side, and he only saw them after they flew. He had to find a way to see them first, see them and get close enough to either shoot them with the bow or use the spear, and he could not find a way to see them. When he had gone halfway around the lake and had jumped up 20 or so birds, he finally gave up and sat at the base of the tree. He had to work this out to see what he was doing wrong. There were birds there, and he had eyes. He just had to bring the two things together. Looking wrong, he thought. I am looking wrong. More, more than I am being wrong somehow. I am doing it the wrong way. Fine. Sarcasm came into his thoughts. I know what you, I know that, thank you. I know I'm doing it wrong. But what is right? The morning sun had cooked him until it seemed his brain was frying, sitting by the tree. But nothing came until he got up and started to walk again. And he hadn't gone two steps when a bird got up. It had been there all the time while he was thinking about how to see them. Right next to him. Right there. He almost screamed. But this time, when the bird flew, something caught his eye, and it was the secret key. The bird cut down toward the lake, then, seeing it couldn't land in the water, turned and flew back up the hill into the tree. When it turned, curving through the trees, the sun had caught it, and Brian, for an instant, saw it as a shape, sharp, pointed in front, back from the head in a streamlined bullet shaped to the fat body, kind of like a pear, he had thought, with the point on one end, and a little fat body, a flying pear. And that had been the secret. He had been looking for feathers, for the color of the bird, for a bird sitting there. He had to look for the outline and said, had to see the shape instead of the feathers or color, had to train his eyes to see the shape. It was like turning on a television. Suddenly he could see things he never saw before. In just moments, it seemed he saw three birds before they flew, saw them sitting and got close to one of them moving slowly, got close enough to try a shot with his bow. He had missed that time and had missed many more. But he saw them. He saw the little fat shapes with the pointed head sitting in the brush all over the place. Time and again he drew, held and let arrows fly, but he still had no feathers on the arrows and they were a little more than sticks that flopped out of the bow, sometimes going sideways. Even when a bird was seven or eight feet away, the arrow would turn without feathers to stabilize it and hit a brush or a twig. After a time, he gave up with the bow. It had worked all right for the fish when they came right to the end of the arrow, but it wasn't good for any kind of distance, at least not the way it was now. But he had carried his fish spear, the original one with the two prongs, and he moved the bow to his left hand and carried the spear in his right. He tried throwing the spear, but he was not good enough and not fast enough. The birds could fly amazingly fast, get up fast. But in the end, he found if he saw the bird sitting and moved sideways toward it, not directly at it, but had an angle back and forth, he could get close enough to put the spear point out ahead almost to the bird and thrust lunge with it. He came close twice, and then down along the lake, not far from the beaver house, he got his first meat. 
The bird had sat and he had lunged into the two points, took the bird back down into the ground and killed it almost immediately. It had fluttered a bit and Brian had grabbed it and held it in both of his hands until he was sure it was dead. Then he picked up the spear and the bow and trotted back around the lake to his shelter where the fire had burned down to glowing coals. He sat looking at the bird, wondering what to do. With the fish, he had just cooked them whole, left everything and picked the meat off. This was different and he would have to clean it. It had always been so simple at home. He would go to the store and get a chicken. It was all cleaned and neat, no feathers or insides, and his mother would bake it in the oven and he would eat it. His mother, from the old time, from the time before, would bake it. Now he had the bird, but he had never cleaned one, never taken the insides out or gotten rid of the feathers, and he didn't know where to start. But he wanted that meat, had to have that meat, and that drove him. In the end, the feathers came off easily. He tried to pluck them out, but the skin was so fragile that it pulled off as well. So he just pulled the skin off the bird, like peeling an orange, he thought, sort of. Except that when the skin was gone, the insides fell out, the back end. It was an immediately caught, he was immediately caught in a cloud of raw odor, a kind of steaming, steamy dung odor that came from the greasy coil of insides that fell from the bird, and he nearly threw up. But there was something else to the smell as well, some kind of richness that went with his hunger, and that overcame the sick smell. He quickly cut the neck with his hatchet, cut the feet off in the same way, and in his hand he held something like a small chicken with a dark, fat, thick breast and small legs. He set up on some sticks on the shelter wall and took the feathers and insides down to the water to his fish pond. The fish would eat them, or eat what they could, and the feeding action would bring more fish. On second thought, he took out the wing and a tail feathers, which were stiff and long and pretty banded in, in speckled browns and grays and light reds. There might be some use for them, he thought. Maybe work them onto the arrow somehow. The rest he threw into the water, saw the small round fish begin tearing at it, and washed his hands. Back at the shelter, the flies were on the meat, and he brushed them off. It was amazing how fast they came, but when he built up the fire and the smoke increased, the flies almost magically disappeared. He pushed a pointed stick through the bird and held it over the fire. The fire was too hot. The flames hit the fat and the bird almost ignited. He held it higher, but the heat was worse and finally he moved it to the side a bit and there it seemed to cook properly, except that it only cooked on the one side and all the juice had dripped off. He had to rotate it slowly and that was hard to do with his hands, so he found a forked stick and stuck it in the sand to put his cooking stick in. He turned it and in this way he found a proper method to cook the bird. In minutes, the outside was cooked, and the odor that came up with it was almost the same as when his mother baked chickens in the oven, and he didn't think he could stand it, but when he tried to pull a piece of the breast meat off, the meat was still raw inside. Patience, he thought. So much of this was patience, waiting and thinking and doing the right things. So much of all of this, so much all of all living was patience and thinking. He settled back, turning the bird slowly, letting the juices go back into the meat letting it cook, and smell, and smell, and cook. And there came a time when it didn't matter if the meat was done or not. It was black on the outside, and hot, and hard, and he would eat it. He tore a piece from the breast, a sliver of meat, and put it into his mouth and chewed carefully. Chewed as slowly and carefully as he could to get all the taste, and he thought, never, never in all the food, all the hamburgers and malts, all the fries or meals at home, Never in all the candy or pies or cakes. Never in all the roasts or steaks or pizzas. Never in all the submarine sandwiches. 
Never, never, never had he tasted anything as fine as that first bite. First meat.